your Bible with you this morning. We are in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 25, Genesis chapter 25, Genesis 25, and we're going to read from verses 1 to 10, Genesis chapter 25, verses 1 to 10. says, then again, Abraham took a wife, and her name was Keturah. And she bare him Zimran, and Juxan, and Medan, and Midian, and Ishbak, and Shua. And Juxan begat Sheba, and Dedan, and the sons of Dedan were Ashurim, and Letushim, and Lamum. And the sons of Midian, Ephah, and Epher, and Hanak, and Abida, and Elda, all these were the children of Keturah. And Abraham gave all that he had unto Isaac, but unto the sons of the concubines which Abraham had, Abraham gave gifts and sent them away from Isaac his son, while he yet lived eastward unto the east country. And these are the days of the years of Abraham's life which he lived, an hundred, threescore, and fifteen years. Then Abraham gave up the ghost. And died in a good old age, an old man, and full of years, and was gathered to his people. And his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zoar, the Hittite, which is before Mamre. The field which Abraham purchased of the sons of Heth, there was Abraham buried, and Sarah his wife. And we trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. We come now to the closing years of Abraham's life. Sarah, as you know, at this stage has passed away, and Abraham outlives her by some 38 years. And it would have been very easy for him at this point just to say, well, you know, that's it. I'm done and just let life pass him by and just cruise all the way uh, to the grave. But that was not the kind of man that Abraham was. He was a man who always had an eye on the future. He was a man who was always looking ahead. And the twilight years of his life were really no different in many respects from the previous years. He had an eye on the future. And so in that respect, we find that it says here that Abraham, verse 1, took a wife. <coughs> now think about that verse. Read it again. It says, Then Abraham took a wife. Now how did the last chapter begin? At chapter 24. If you look back in verse 1 it says, And Abraham was old and well stricken in age. You turn the page and it says, Then Abraham <laughs> took a wife. And, uh, you know, you've got, to, you've got to think about this. Here's a man who is 140 years old, and he took a wife. He took a wife. Now, some of us might be tempted to say, what is wrong with him? You know, when my father, when my mother passed away, we used to sometimes say to our father about getting married again, they'd say, what would I want another woman for? What would I want the wife for? He'd say, a lot, of, a lot of widowers are that way. You know, not, not that he was unhappy with my mother. He was, you know, absolutely devoted to her. But he just couldn't see any point in going forward with any other woman. And yet here we find Abraham takes a wife. 
you know, he decided that life is for the living. And so you can imagine this 140-year-old man, he proposes to this much younger lady by the name of Keturah, and if that's not enough, he goes beyond that and he begins a whole new family with his new bride. You know, you have to admire people who have that kind of outlook in life. When I pastored in England, I had the joy of marrying two couples in their 80s. And it was a, it was a blessing. Absolutely. You know what, we, I married numerous young people and we had a great time, great day. But see, the, the, the older people, it was just, there was just something absolutely delightful about marrying. I mean, one man was 86 years old. And he was marrying a wife. <laughs> and you say, well, what is he thinking? You know, he's, he's nearly dead. <laughs> you know, and he, and he did pass away. He passed away within about three or four years of, of that. But, you know, here's the thing. He had such a fear for life. He was just so excited about having this new bride who was, I think, at this point, 81 years old. And these, this, you know, and the joy as a as a pastor when you bring these older people up to the altar and you're marrying them, you, you know that they know what they're getting into. <laughs> you don't have to do pastoral counselling with them. You don't have to say, well, let's do some premarital counselling. You know, one couple I'd married, uh, they, this was their third marriage. They're, they had had two marriages previous, each in which their previous uh, spouses had passed away. They had been widowed twice, and now they were marrying for the third time. And it was remarkable to watch the, uh, the evolution of their relationship, to see the husband, you know, again, a man in his 80s, suddenly he starts going to the gym. He's going to the gym. He's, he's healthier than me. He's, you know, he's, he's swimming up and down the pool. He's, he's lifting weights. He gets this new ferve for life. This was a man who had lived all of his days in one locality. And apart from a little spell in the army back in the 1960s or 1950s, he hadn't moved outside of that locality. He always lived in the same place. I remember going to London with him as part of a church group and we were doing a tour of the British Museum in London and, and he, as we were walking along the street in London, he was fascinated. He says, this is, the, this is the first time I've ever been in London. And I couldn't believe it. I thought, here's a man who grew up you know, less than two hours from London and had never seen Buckingham Palace, had never seen Downing Street, had never seen Big Ben. And I was just amazed that there were people that, even, that lived like that in England. And yet when he, got, when he got married, what did he do? He got on a plane with his new bride and they started going off on holidays to the Mediterranean. And it was lovely. You see, some people, well... Some people just allow life to happen. They approach their latter years as, as, as if they've just got to settle down now and, and just let life pass them by. They have no adventure, no optimism, no thought for the future. No, no, they're no longer grabbing life by the horns, but rather just sitting around and, as we say, they're waiting for God, waiting for death to usher them into eternity. Friends, can I say to you, especially those of you who are up in your older years, that you ought not to allow that to happen. Your life is too short. And you should eke out of life every moment that God and his grace gives you. 
You should be accepting with joy every gift that God sends your way every day of your life. Don't leave the adventure to the young people. You know, a number of years ago, Hazel on her 30th birthday decided that for some reason she wanted to parachute out of an aeroplane. Don't ask me why. But she wanted to jump out of an aeroplane, you know. And she did. She went and she jumped out of an aeroplane. But on the same day, there was a man who was 70 years old jumping out of the aeroplane. He was celebrating his 70th birthday by trying to kill himself. Uh, he, was, he was jumping out of an aircraft. Parachuting, it said. And, and people were amazed. And yet with all, you've got to admire that kind of, that kind of fur for life. You've got to admire somebody who has that kind of zest uh, for life. And so Abraham was that kind of uh, fellow. You know, we, you know and, and I don't want you to get the idea that Abraham was a pleasure seeker either. I don't want you to think he was a hedonist, that he lived out all of his last days for self. No, Abraham was a spiritual man. And although uh, he started this new life with a new life, he never forgot the promises of God. He still keeps an eye on the prize that God has set before him, that which is coming his way via his son Isaac. You see, friends, in our walk with the Lord, it's not only important that we start well, it's more important, I would say, that we finish well. I'm very thankful tonight that we have four young people who have come forward and are saying, we want to be baptized and follow the Lord and this command of his. And we praise God for that. And it's wonderful that they've been saved and they're starting well. But that's just where they are in the journey. They're at the start of the journey. And here's the thing. Glad as we are for these young people and rejoicing in their commitment to identify with Christ in that way, we want to encourage them and encourage each other to finish well. To get to the finishing line. Notice in verses 1 through 4, Abraham's family. Then Abraham took a wife, and her name was Keturah. She bare him Simram, and Jokshan, and Midan, and Midian, and Ishbak, and Shua. And Jokshan begat Sheba, and Dedan, and the sons of Dedan were Ashurim, and Letushim, and Lemum, and the sons of Midian, Ephah, and Ephah, and Hanak, and Abida, and Elda. All these were the children of Keturah. Now the name Keturah, and I want you to hold this in your memory bank, is, it means fragrance, or incense. And there can be no doubt that Keturah was a godly woman. For sure, Abraham would never have married any other. And evidently, uh, before he had married her, she had been numbered among his concubines. Now, a concubine did not have the same status as a wife. And one of the indications of that is that it was forbidden for the child of a concubine to inherit that which belonged to the son of a wife. And we'll see that happening here in this text. But understand that Keturah was given a promotion in Abraham's home and became his wife for many years after that Sarah had passed away. Well, it's clear that Keturah had, must have been considerably younger than Sarah, for unlike her predecessor, she bears her husband children, six sons in all. And let me tell you, it's a very brave man who at the age of 140 takes on a younger wife in his old age, and it's a braver man still who brings six little boys into his life at that point. 
You know, we, we, we don't, obviously don't see our grandchildren as often as we'd like, uh, but when we did see them with regularity, and we were always glad to see them come, see them coming down the drive, you know, full of enthusiasm, glad to be at their granny and grannies, granny and grandas, but they would come in, and then they'd wreck the place, and then they'd leave. And you know what? You're always as glad to see them leave as you were to see them come. But Abraham couldn't see his six sons leave when he was 140 years old. He had to live with them night and day. He had to tuck them in the bed at night. He had to help with their baths at the weekends. He, he had to do whatever it was that any other father would have done. And, and so you've got to admire, admire his courage in that respect. And, and we're told the names of these sons. Zimran. That means singer or song. He was the musician of the family. I wonder if you've got a musician in your family. You know, we had uh, two musicians in our family. Our, uh, our eldest daughter and our, our youngest son uh, were, were, were musicians and are musicians. And our son in particular would play the piano night and day. I mean, he, would, he wouldn't even have to tell him to practice. You'd have to tell him to stop playing. Because I'd, I'd be wanting to watch the news at night and he'd still be playing his piano. And I'd say, son, could you give it a rest for half an hour till I watch the news? And he would literally give me half an hour and then he'd go back to the piano again. Maybe you've got a musician in your family. Wonderful gift. There was Jackson. His name means difficult. There's always one like that in every family, isn't there? There's always one that takes you to the wire. There's always one that pushes the boundary. There's always one that you're fretting about. There's always one that you would happily kill. Then there was Medan and Midian. Their names mean judgment. And all of these these names here, all of these men uh, end up forming various branches of the Arab nations. But the Midianites became among the most fierce of Israel's enemies. There's Ishbak. Here's a very unusual name to give a child. His name means forsaken, abandoned. Why was he called uh, that? Well, there's a significance to this, and we'll see it in a few moments. And then finally, there's Shua, and his name means pity or crying or humiliation. Again, a very unusual name to give to your child. Uh, and the word is, is interesting. It's rooted in another word, which means bowed down. He was bowed down. If you're familiar with the book of Job, you'll have encountered a man by the name of Bildad. He's referred to as Bildad the Shuhite. He is a descendant of Shua. And then we find two grandsons mentioned, Sheba and Dedan. According to Ezekiel 38, these two, Ali, are the people that descended from them ally with the enemies of Israel just after the rapture when there's a great Russian invasion into Israel. Uh, Dedan and Sheba ally with the Russian army in opposing Israel right after the rapture of the church. And finally there are five grandsons who are named. Now this is a houseful in anybody's book and surely having these young lads around and perhaps some young ladies besides, you know, it must have given Abraham a new lease of life. You know, he must have just found a, a, new, a, new, a, a new desire, a new delight in living out each day that he had left. Then verses 5 and 6 tell us something, not just about his family, but about his fortune. It says, And Abraham gave all that he had unto Isaac, but unto the sons of the concubines which Abraham had, 
Abraham gave gifts and sent them away from Isaac his son while he yet lived eastward unto the east country. Now here's the thing. Notice that Abraham gave almost everything he had to Isaac. Put that away. Remember that. You see, he's still clinging. Even at this latter stage of his life, he's still clinging to the promises that God made him. He's not about to make the same mistake that he made with Hagar and Ishmael. He's not going to give Ishmael an equal rating alongside of Isaac. He's not going to do this with his new sons. He's not going to set Isaac and up with the other sons and say, well, your peers, your contemporaries, that you that you're all have to have an equal divide of my inheritance. No, he gives gifts to the sons of his concubines and he sends them eastward. They would have no portion in Isaac and he wouldn't risk the possibility of a fierce sibling rivalry within his own home again. No one must tamper with the inheritance of Isaac. And so no doubt, having taken good care of them, Abraham ultimately compels his sons to leave home and go and set up their own homes elsewhere. The book of Proverbs says, A good man leaveth an inheritance to his children's children. And I love that. And it tells us something about Abraham. Abraham was a good man. He thought about his children and his children's children. And then we come to his farewell in verse 7. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, which he lived in hundred, threescore, and fifteen years. And then Abraham gave up the ghost and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. And his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zoar, the Hittite, which is before Mamre, the field which Abraham purchased of the sons of Heth. There was Abraham buried, and Sarah his wife. So we're told that he dies at the age of an hundred threescore and 15 years. That's 175 years old when Abraham passes away. And we read that he gave up the ghost. That's what happens at death, you know. You just give up the ghost. James tells us that the body without the spirit is dead. The spirit departs the body. You give up the ghost. So Abraham gave up the ghost. We read that he died in a good old age, an old man. And look at this little phrase. He's full of years. It's full of years. In other words, it, it literally reads that he died full. That he died satisfied with his days. You know, what a way to go. I wonder when it comes our time to part this earth and to head into eternity, will we be satisfied with our days? Will we feel like our time has been well spent here? Will we feel like we've redeemed the time that God gave us? He died happy, we might say. He died happy. Let me take you back a few months. Christmas Day. You've just had Christmas lunch. And your stomach is full. You're full of turkey and Brussels sprouts and all those good things that you have at Christmas dinner. And what inevitably happens? You sit down. and Perhaps you've got with the best will in the world the desire to play with your children or your grandchildren, you've got the desire to maybe listen to the Queen's speech or watch a Christmas movie, but you just feel those eyelids getting heavier and heavier and heavier, don't you? 
And before you know it, you're gone. <laughs> At least I am. <laughs> I'm gone. I'm away. And it's a blissful sleep. And that's the idea here. It's as though Abraham just lay back, closed his eyes, and went to sleep with a satisfied smile. That's the way you want to go. And here's the best part of it. Then Abraham gave up the ghost and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years. And notice what it says. And he was gathered to his people. Now there are some people who take that phrase to mean that he was simply buried with his loved ones. But I want you to notice that this is said ever before he is buried. They haven't begun his burial, and already God says he was gathered to his people. In fact, you know, if you're thinking about his loved ones and his burial plot, he's buried in the cave of Machpelah. There's only one body in that grave, and that's the body of Sarah, his wife. So really, if God had intended to say that, he would have said he was gathered to Sarah, his wife. But that's not what it says. It uses the plural term, his people. He was gathered to his people. It's a reference to his spiritual family. You know, every now and then, he and I, we go grocery shopping, not groceries, we'll pop into the M&S Food Hall. And I love M&S Food Hall. I love shopping in M&S Food Hall. We don't go that often, but every now and then, we'll poke our nose in and have a look around. And I like, I like what they have on offer in the M&S Food Hall. And I'll say to Hazel, these are my people. I says, these aren't the Tesco types. These are not the little types. No, these are my people. And you know, there's a, there's a pecking order, isn't there? There's a pecking order of supermarkets. You know, you have little at the bottom of the lake. Then you have all day Tesco. And then you have M&S. And maybe Marks and, you know, Marks and, Marks. and then you go one step above if you get wheat rose. Now there, I just checked the other day to see if there was a wheat rose in Northern Ireland. They don't even have one in Northern Ireland. They said your nearest one is over 100 miles away. Wheat rose only comes to you if you're really, really posh. I mean really posh. So we don't have one. But, you know, you go into Marks and Sparks and, and then their food hall and there's, certain, there's just a certain feel about it, isn't there? You feel like you're on a day out. And, and you feel like everything's better quality. You just, it's better presented. And you don't mind paying a few pounds more because you feel, you know, these are, these are my people, I say to Hazel. And then she scoffs. Abraham went to be with his people. He joined the ranks of the redeemed in paradise. You realize, friends, there's going to be a great reunion someday with God's people. That those of us who are saved are going to be gathered unto our people someday. That we're going to be standing in the presence of all the saints who have gone before. That in a moment, in a, in a twinkling of an eye, we're going to be caught up to the side of Christ. That we're going to be snatched away. That we're going to be right there in that instance in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does the Bible say about that? I would not have you be ignorant, brethren concerning them which are asleep that you sorrow not even as others who have no hope 
For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, then uh, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain shall not, uh, sorry, we that are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up with them, uh, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. There's coming a day, and listen, it ought to thrill your soul, there's coming a day when you and I, whether we're alive or whether we're dead, we're going to be gathered unto our people. There's going to be a mighty reunion at the throne of Christ. And we'll know each other. And we'll recognize one another. And we'll be gathered together as one body. Isn't that wonderful? Finally, in Genesis 25 and verses 9 and 10, we read how Isaac and Ishmael buried their father. And this is the last direction between Isaac and Ishmael in all of Scripture. As far as the record of the Bible goes, these two men will never encounter one another again. Their descendants, in fact, will become arch enemies. But for a moment, they've come together to bury their father. And there, you know, there would have been other familiar mourners at that particular funeral. If you think about it, Jacob and Esau were likely there. Now, we haven't encountered Jacob and Esau in Scripture yet. But at this point, they're about 15 years of age, so it's very likely that they were there at the grave of Abraham. Eber, the great uh, grandson of Noah, may have been present there. Uh, you know, Abraham was born only two years after the death of Noah. You know, we often forget that owing to the greater longevity of man at that time, that there were many of these Old Testament characters who moved and shared the same space. You know, they moved within and shared the same space. They lived in the same time. You see, we tend to read the Bible in blocks. We tend to read it like one person follows after another, follows after another, follows after another. But they did. They lived as we do, one generation living with another. And so it's very likely that Jacob and Esau would have been in attendance at the funeral of Abraham. But one thing is for certain. When Abraham died, he was gathered onto his people, onto Adam, onto Seth, onto Enoch, onto Noah, onto his beloved Sarah. Those are his people. Now go with me to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. Because I want to think about his future. Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. The Lord Jesus looking forward. Says this. And I say unto you. That many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Now here's the Lord Jesus and he's speaking about the future kingdom to come and he reminds us that Abraham is going to be a prominent figure in that future. You see, you haven't seen or we haven't heard the last 
of this man or from this man. He's going to be raised from the dead at the end of the coming tribulation period and he will be found seated with the Lord during the millennial kingdom. Now follow along as all of this plays out. I want to take you back and revise what we've, what we've touched on in Genesis so far. In Genesis chapter 22, if you'll recall, Abraham portrays God the Father. Isaac portrays God the Son as they ascend Mount Moriah, as they ascend the hill of Calvary and there Isaac lays down his life and offering upon the altar only to be rescued by the ram with its head caught in the thicket and in so doing he accounts to have had a resurrection in form. Isaac pictures the death, the burial and the resurrection of Christ. Then in chapter 23, we see that Sarah, as Abraham's wife, serves the type of Israel, that Sarah dies and is buried in Canaan among the Gentiles. She's portraying the Israelite nation, a nation which sadly becomes diminished after the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ, a nation that is scattered among the Gentile nations of the world. Then we get into chapter 24. There we witnessed Abraham sending out his his servant, Eliezer, who is unnamed in that passage, he sends out his servant, commissioning him to find a bride on behalf of his son. Here's a perfect type of the work of the Holy Spirit as God the Father commissions the Spirit of God in this age to go out into the world and by means of the gospel to call a Gentile bride unto himself. Now here in chapter 25, the type is completed. And notice the first thing is that the Father gives everything into the hands of his son. That's what it says. Abraham gave all that he had unto Isaac. The father gives everything to the son. That's exactly how it is with Christ. The father has given everything to the son. Listen now to John chapter 5 and verse 22 where it says, For the father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father, which hath sent him. In Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18, Jesus says, all power is given unto me. He says, I've received everything from the Father. I am the one who receives the right to judge all. I'm the one who receives all of the heavenly power. In Ephesians chapter 1, likewise, you see the same truth replicated and repeated in verses 22 and 23. It says that God hath put all things under his feet and gave him, Jesus, to be the head over over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. You get to the book of Hebrews, and again, this message that Christ is to receive all and does receive all is repeated in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2. It says, God hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things. And so it goes. It all belongs to Jesus. The Father has surrendered everything unto him. And nothing and no one will usurp his divine right to rule and reign over this planet and over the universe. Now you come to Keturah. What do we see in Keturah typologically? We find a different picture of Israel. 
Now we have the wife of the father. We, she's, we see God is still the wife of Jehovah. But she's serving in an offering of incense, bringing a sweet fragrance unto the Lord. Friends, the church is not the end of God's plan for Israel, despite what many Christians believe. Romans 9, 10, 11 is abundantly clear that God still has a future for Israel. And Keturah pictures that future as Israel as she shows us in form how Israel will worship again. Remember, her name means incense. In Ezekiel chapter 40 to 48, we have a a marvelous description of a glorious temple that is yet future, the millennial temple. Someday in the will of God, I'm going to walk you through that temple and I'm going to show it to you in all of its grandeur, I trust. But for the moment, if you're not familiar with it, uh, you know, take the time if you want to go and read it. There's a lot of detail in there and it makes for, it doesn't make for easy reading. But understand, there's coming a, a glorious temple that is going to be erected in Jerusalem, which will be the throne room of the Lord Jesus Christ. And among the details that were given concerning that temple is that found in Ezekiel 41, where it says, There shall be an altar of wood, three cubits high. This is the table that is before the Lord. What is the table that is before before the Lord, what was the table that sat, the altar that sat before the uh, before the veil that entered as you entered into the holy of holies? It was the altar of incense. And Keturah typifies this element of Israel's worship in the kingdom age. And her children highlight that same period of time. They show how the Gentile nations evolve over the course of the kingdom age in their opposition to the rule of Christ. Remember each of those names. Look, there's not a drop of ink wasted in the word of God. God doesn't just give you a bunch of names just so you have a bunch of names. The Bible isn't just given to you like a telephone directory. There's purpose in what's written. Everything is there by design. Everything is there by the determined will of God. And so God gives us the names of these children. And we ran through them earlier. You have Zimron. He's the singer, the musician. He portrays the world at the outset of the millennial kingdom age when those who survived the tribulation and entered into its, uh, into its rule in their mortal bodies worship the king. You see, there's two types of people in the millennial kingdom. There's those who are in their mortal bodies and there'll be those like ourselves who will be immortal. Those who go alive into the kingdom in their mortal bodies will be believers. And you know, on that hour and that day, then we may legitimately sing joy to the, lo- to the world, the Lord has come. We sing that at Christmas as a, as a song, a celebration of the incarnation. But actually when Isaac Watts wrote that hymn, he had in view the millennial kingdom. He saw that day coming when Christ would come to earth to rule and to reign. And he wrote, joy to the world, the Lord has come. And the Bible says this of that hour, yea, all kings shall fall, shall fall down before him, all nations shall serve him. That's how it is at the outset of the millennial kingdom. It's Simran. Everybody's worshipping. Every Everybody's singing. Everybody's committed to the Lord. Everybody's devoted to him. But what happens next? Those people who go into the kingdom in their mortal bodies have children of their own. And what kind of children do mortals have? Sinful children. Little children who sit at the front of the church and look at you like butter wouldn't melt in their mouths. Say they've never told a lie. 
And we smile at that because children do that, don't they? But we know that they do lie. Because you never have to teach a child how to lie. It just comes naturally to him or her as a sinner. And that's what happens in the millennial kingdom. Who's the next son? Jakshan. His name means difficult. Now as the original survivors of the, uh, of the, uh, of the tribulation bear children of their own. Children for whom the tribulation and the coming of Christ is nothing but a history lesson. Children who never knew the world that existed before Christ judges it. They resent the rule of Christ. They resist the rule of Christ. Look in Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah chapter 14. Verse 17. Actually, let's read verses 16 and 17. It says, It shall come to pass that every one that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, to keep the feast of tabernacles. This is during the kingdom age. And it shall be that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. And if the family of Egypt go not up and come not up that have no rain, there shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen that came, up, came not up to keep the feast of tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the feast of tabernacles. Now here's my question to you. At what point have the Gentile nations been required to keep the Feast of Tabernacles? At what point in Old Testament history do you find Gentiles going to Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Tabernacles? At what point in modern history do you see Gentiles going to Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Tabernacles? It has never happened in all of human history. But when the Lord Jesus Christ comes and he rules and he reigns from Jerusalem, Gentiles will be required to come to Israel and to worship at the Feast of Tabernacles. And yet with all we find there are some who are difficult. And they refuse to come. And then you find the names Medan and Midian, meaning judgment. Revelation 12, 5 tells us that Christ must rule with a rod of iron. That wouldn't be necessary in the kingdom age unless there is some opposition to his rule. Some resistance. And then the next name that you come across in Genesis 25 is the name Ishbak, which means forsaken, abandoned. If you understand the timeline of prophecy and you understand what happens at the end of the millennial kingdom age, as the millennial age draws to its close, there is disaffection with Christ and his rule. And the unregenerate resist his rule. And they raise a rebellion against his rule. And there is a forsaking of God's law and abandonment of Christ's rule. Revelation 20 stipulates that when the thousand years are expired, it's the thousand years of Christ's reign, on earth. When the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison, and he shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints, compassed the camp of the saints about, and the beloved city. It's a huge rebellion against Christ. Now, you say, well, well, why does God allow this? 
You know, if you look at the reasons people give today for why the world is how it is, they'll say, well, it's because of social conditions. It's because of poor economics. It's because of bad government. But actually, you get to the kingdom age, you have perfect government in the person of Christ. You have perfect social conditions. You have a perfect education system. People are taught by the Lord. Nobody's going hungry. Nobody's going without. Nobody's uneducated. Nobody is at the bottom end of society. Everybody is treated with love and grace and kindness and fairness and justice. And what? Man still rebels against God. And it reveals that the problem is not one of injustice. It's not one of inequity. It's not one of poor education. It's not one of societal. The problem that man has today is a problem of the heart. It's a problem with sin. And even under the perfect conditions of the millennial kingdom, still men sin and rebel against God. And what happens at the close of that rebellion? It's crushed. Shua means pit, crying. In the final battle against God and his son, man finds himself on the receiving end of God's judgment. Satan's rebels are defeated and humiliated as the Lord crushes the opposition. And what now? Now they must bow the knee. They bend their knee before the king and he casts them weeping and wailing into the pit. Hence the name Shua, pit, crying, humiliation, bowed down. Revelation 20.10 says, And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That's what happens contextually after this rebellion. But I don't want to end on that negative note this morning. I want to think about Abraham. I don't want to think about his outlook in life. How he was so you know, far-reaching uh, in his thoughts. that He, you know, he was looking forward uh, both to his time left on this earth as well as to receiving the promises of God. What a blessing to know that someday, and because of those promises, we know the Lord Jesus will come and he will rule and reign over this planet. And Abraham shall receive every one of those promises that were made to him in the covenant. But as a bonus, you know, not only will we see Jesus, and I love this, we will see Abraham someday. You know, maybe you can, you can saddle up, say to Abraham, say, hey, Abraham, what was it like? with a new wife, six kids, at the age of 135. How did that go? <laughs> He'd probably have a few stories to tell you. But we will see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and others in the kingdom age. We'll see this man who was the friend of God, the man who set the pace for a life of faith, seated at the Savior's table. The story is told of a man who one night at a dinner, fascinated his companions by telling of his experiences in a little town by the name of Flagstaff. The town was to be flooded as part of a large reservoir project. They were building a dam wall around it. And in the months before it was to be flooded, 
all improvements, all repairs in the whole town began to grind to a halt. After all, what's the use in painting your fence if it's going to be under you know, many feet of water in, in a very short time? What's the point in putting new windows in or mowing your lawn if the whole thing is going to be submerged in water? And so uh, people began just no longer to take interest in their home w- without anything to do, anything to, that really motivated them to fix their homes. The whole village very quickly fell into disrepair. Week by week, the whole town became more and more bedraggled, more and more woebegone. And then at the end of his tale, the man summarized the whole sorry affair with these words. Where there is no faith in the future, there is no power in the present. Where there is no faith in the future, there is no power in the present. You know what I like about Abraham? Then again, Abraham took a wife. He had faith in the future. He took God at his word. And consequently, he was faithful. Indeed, scripture refers to him in Galatians as faithful Abraham. He lived out the promises of God. He became known as the friend of God. Now, you and I are living in a time when many are very pessimistic about the future. You know, we're still living in a pandemic. Now, I know in, in our minds, many of us think it's gone away and that's the end of it. But actually, people are still catching COVID. And around the world, it is still a problem in many nations. So we're still living in a pandemic. We have the menace of war looming over us with all that's going on in Ukraine. We find the Russians are threatening us almost day and daily with nuclear attack. There's alarm over the environment. Many young people are suffering what's called climate anxiety. We've got global terrorism and now we have hyperinflation that is impacting our economy. It would be very easy to feel down, wouldn't it? It would be very easy to be depressed, to be deflated, to be disheartened, to be pessimistic about the future. But friends, this is not the Christian's lot. For us, the future is as bright as the promises of God. And a Christian should stand in this pessimistic age as a beacon of hope. And when people you meet speak about how depressing the whole world seems to be at this point in time, uh, how grim everything is on the news, uh, how that it's just one bad story after another, my goodness, what an opportunity for us to say, but listen, this is not the end. There's a brighter day coming. Jesus is coming again. There is hope for our tomorrow. And if, like Abraham, we'll learn to link to cling to God's promises for the future, we too will have power in the present. We can live out our hope by faith and prove ourselves to be, as he was, faithful and a friend of God. May God bless these thoughts to your hearts this morning.